This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl. So from now on, we're recording. Okay. Okay. I'm glad we had that little walkthrough because um, I forgot to bring my notes from last time. So well, the thing I'm... is, Jay, that we really need to sort of, um, it sounds a bit uh, unqualitative, but it's not how I mean it, but we need to sort of speed it up a bit because we, I tend to be very, oh, um, I take detours a lot. Welcome back, dear listeners. You've tuned in to our new series of talks called Thriving on Mull. The Isle of Mull in the northwest of Scotland, UK, is the second of five destinations in our search for the pluriverse in the fringes of Europe. We all feel the world's in a shift and we need to learn alternative ways to live with others. Radical new imaginations for a planet in need. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. And with us today in this warming up talk to Mill is Jay Tomt. Welcome, Jay. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And we've invited you to be one of our guides because before we physically go to Mill, we felt we need some UK context and uh, to kind of land in a way mentally in the, in the UK. And uh, we really find your take on regenerative economy important to learn from, which is the reason we've invited you. So let me introduce you shortly. You were one of the founders of the Totnes Reconomy Project in the UK, in Totnes, which is the first transition town. And over the years, you've delivered trainings in transition workshops worldwide. Um, you are active today as an executive, a consultant, an activist, and a writer. And your areas of expertise, and I got this from your LinkedIn page, include citizen-led economics, green building and green supply chain, ethical consuming, waste reduction, much more, but especially the mysterious term retrofitting. And we were wondering, what is retrofitting, Jay, in a nutshell? I was just sitting here thinking I need to update my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Well, retrofitting um, has to do basically with bringing old buildings up to new, more efficient standards. So really making old buildings energy uh, efficient and healthy. So I was, I was briefly involved in that sort of thing earlier in this century when I lived in San Francisco. But right now, the, the bulk of my work is around local economics and um, local entrepreneurship. So that relates to the Reconomy Project and a similar project that we started up called Local Spark Tor Bay. And it relates to some of the teaching, teaching that I've been doing at Schumacher College. Exactly, mm -hmm. because you lead the MA in Regenerative Economy there, right? At Schumacher. I'm part of a team of two. It's a very rewarding experience, I should say. So you talk, you, you use the word local a lot. So, and local for you means now in the UK, in Totnes. But let's take you back to uh, California, where you, you were born, where you started your professional career there. And your first business was in computer graphics in 
when I think at the start of Silicon Valley, right? In, uh, during that time, the early 80s? Well, it was, um, it was the late 80s. Um, and I joined my brother in 1989. I just graduated with, uh, with my MBA, basically, and was uh, really interested in uh, being my own boss more than anything, and also being in, a, in an industry that had nothing to do with the military or was doing anything bad for the planet. So I thought tech seemed seemed pretty good, and I grew up there. So I joined my brother, and we started uh, a computer graphics company. And then I left after, gosh, after about four or five years, and started my own company uh, doing multimedia. And that was right uh, in the mid '90s when C interactive CD-ROMs were a thing for about 15 minutes, and then there was the internet. So I was there in the earliest days of the internet with my little company and we were in a, an incubator. One of, one of the guys who was there has, is now a billionaire, met lots of interesting people. And it was a really interesting time to, to be in that environment. Um, everything that we take for granted about the internet today was talked about in that incubator. And one of the lessons that taught me was good ideas are a dime a dozen. In one of the warming up talks, we talked to another Jay, Jay, Jay Jordan, Jordan. and um, he's an activist and he lives in Lazard in France, which is like an, an autonomous territory, you could say, in the south of France. He came up with the, the, the example of Silicon Valley and the start of the internet as, as a typical situation where everybody said, yes, yes, this is a new world, this is a new possibility. And nobody thought about saying no to the more commercial uh, capitalist um, go at this new world and this new world of possibilities, you could say. So if you would think in this yes and no, and you were there at the late eighties and there was a lot of yes going on probably at the time, how would you think about that yes and that? One of the things that I think you get in California in general is the sense of possibility utopia is just over the horizon. And that, that goes all the way back to the gold rush when the guys who made the money from the gold rush, who were not the miners, they're the financiers, they saw California as the beginning of a, of a new Pacific empire. And so there's always been this sense that great things could happen and that, and that it, was, it was within the realm of, of possibility. So in those early days of computing in the Bay Area, there's a lot of sort of utopian thinking and a lot of optimism and idealism, maybe as a bit of a ripple effect from the hippie days and, and everything that came next. In, in the 90s, there were these digital beings, which um, really celebrated the, the possibility of technology to be liberating and emancipatory. And when the internet came out before the internet, there were online communities and, and already it, this was being talked about as a, a new paradigm not just for the ways that people connect, but for really democratizing politics and democratizing society and democratizing knowledge and so on and so on. I think that wave of optimism probably comes about, has come about before, let's say, um, with the invention probably of the telegraph, certainly with the television. Um, it was perhaps inevitable that this optimism was going to meet harsh reality at some point. And just like the gold rush, when the big money came in from outside to dominate, um, that happened again with the internet. And there was, no, there was no saying no to it. So it's like, how do you say no to a tsunami? 
um, the money came in, uh, those big powerful corporations or venture capitalists or both uh, came in to, to um, dominate and, and create the industry that we know today, including the good parts and the not so good parts. And was that also a reason why you in the end left the United States? I mean, it's the kind of idealism that, that led me to doing the kind of work that I'm doing now. Um, I became very disaffected in the late 90s with all these people from the East Coast who were not from my neighborhood coming in to, to make all the money and, you know, clog up the streets with their Porsches and, and all the rest. Every business suddenly wanted to be a dot-com and it made no sense. It was absolutely crazy and, and all this idealism gave way to just this rush for money and I was looking for a way out. And then in 1999, the battle in Seattle happened and that kind of woke me from my slumber. And I started plotting to, to close my business down and do something else, which um, through circumstance, 9-11 um, just helped put a cap on that for me. But for, for our listeners who are not familiar with the 99 battle, can you in a nutshell share like what they were, what the stakes were and what, what was being advocated for? What was um, happening was there was going to be a ministerial level meeting of the World Trade Organization, which meant heads of state and heads of ministries were going to be meeting to uh, approve various trade arrangements. And when the WTO was created, it became a supranational organization where the rules were made away from, from any kind of democratic oversight. Corporations were, uh, were in the room and international finance uh, was in the room and so on. So activists decided to protest. It turned into a street battle. Um, the cops, the police overreacted and they shut down the meeting. And that, I think, put a real spark into the anti-globalization movement and the ultra-globalization movement and led uh, ultimately to the World Social Forum and, and lots of other great work. And so... You know, that woke me up and, and made me realize that things were going to um, take a dangerous turn. And the, the story of this century so far is, is just that, you know, things have gotten worse, not better. And it's not only, but primarily because of the power of corporations. So you left the United States and you relocalized in Totnes. And what helped is that your partner was from the UK. Did you choose the south of the UK, Devon, because Totnes is lo localized in Devon, uh, because it resembles California the most. <laughs> I came here expecting palm trees and redwood trees and, you know, deserts, beautiful sunset skiing, unbelievable skiing, <laughs> and the wine. No, we don't think you're dead naive. Jay. And so I was, yeah, I was, I was mistaken on all those points. We, we knew we would move to England at some point. We thought Devon or Cornwall because the weather is great where you know it's not, right, not so bad not so bad and then um we heard about Totnes because of the transition town movement and because of Schumacher College and we thought well if we move anywhere why don't we try that place we came and checked it out and we've we've kind of been here ever since for 10 years that's nice that's interesting just say it and then it happens and it will happen <laughs> So um, the UK and uh, superficially seen the UK and the UK culture and American culture, or maybe even European culture and American culture seems quite close. But are they really that close? 
Well, one of the uniting factors I would say is consumer culture. That was one of the big surprises for me was, wow, the consumer culture here is just as bad as, as the US and sometimes even worse. And that did kind of lull me into a sense that we are very similar and that has backfired on me a few times. Sometimes I, I don't understand like what social, social interaction just happened because I was working on the assumption that we were speaking the same language. And it's of course been pointed out to, to me very, very often that my English is very different to the English that's spoken here. <laughs> Can you give us a recent example of such a social interaction? Oh gosh, that would be hard. But you know, one of the things that took a while to get used to is in, and this might be an exaggeration, people in England will say things like, oh, you must come around for lunch sometime, which really means I don't ever want to see you again. So please just <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> and I'm a Californian, so. So you show up for lunch. Hey, NJ, what about the, the political climate or the political reality as compared to, to California? How do you look at that? Uh, well, you know, it's been a very interesting 10 years because of all the things that have been happening in the world perpetrated by all of our countries, if we're honest about it. And the United States is, is only the best at, at making trouble because at the moment we're ascendant, we have all the power. The UK has made plenty of trouble that we're still dealing with in this world. We are all democracies, but they function differently in the States and, and in the UK, right? Yes, we're very similar in that we're democracies. We're very similar in that our, our countries uh, uh, laid the groundwork for some of the problems that we're still dealing with in the world. I thought that there was going to be more democracy in this country. I mean, the political culture here, I find to be um, uh, very puzzling for a number of reasons. And, and nobody is going to take any of this seriously because I come from the land of Trump and the land of empire and so on. But one of the things that we do have in the States is we have local power and we have a sense politically that as citizens, we are, uh, we're equal, we have certain rights and God damn it, they're not going to be taken away. And this is, this is partly what's fueling some of the right-wing populism there. But I think there is a kind of don't tread on me attitude in the States that does create political possibility at the grassroots level. And when you have local uh, political organizations, uh, city councils and that have power, you can get things done. In this country, the political power is very centralized in London. Local councils very often don't have very much power. They don't have very many resources. Many of the posts, many of the elected positions are sinecures. I mean, basically people run because it's the thing you do when you reach a certain age. And this is not, of course, universally true across the UK, but I think it's true in a lot of places. And so this has sparked um, a bit of a movement here toward independence uh, of various kinds. I know in Scotland, there's the independence movement. There's the Brexit movement, which in a way was a kind of independence movement. But it's also sparked things like the alternative UK and flat pack democracy, which is providing another kind of uh, independent politics to, to try to you know, get things done. That sparks in me the, the question. I mean, you moved to the UK and to, to Tottenham in particular because it was a transition town that you had heard of. Um, how then to stir a transition process if there is so little um, 
political agency at, at a local level? Well, um, I guess first thing I'll say is I'm no expert at revolution, so I don't, I can't, I can't claim to know all the things that work and don't work. Um, what I've observed here in Totnes is that um, it was already fertile ground. So Darnington had, had been here for a long time and Darnington is, if it's known for anything around the UK, it's known for incubating progressive things of various kinds. It's, it's where the welfare state in the UK was conceived. It's where all kinds of democratic schooling uh, was developed. It, there was an art school. And during the war, intellectuals and artists from, from the continent ended up spending a lot of time here. So the, the legacy of that is that a lot of progressive and interesting people are here. And so when transition started up, they started up with doing public events and, and just reaching out to people and, and, and curating participatory events where people uh, had a role to play in how the event or how the meeting was going to go. So using things like open space and uh, uh, other methodologies for, for facilitating. And so, um, you know, in a way, transition kind of got a head start there. And I'm also involved in another project, a similar project in Torbay, which does not have fertile ground. And so it's been real interesting to see how you can begin to create the, the kinds of connections what I'm talking about with fertile ground really is relationships. And so um, these kinds of facilitation techniques and processes really uh, are designed to, to get conversations going and, and build relationships. So one of, the, one of the critiques of the dominant um, political economic paradigm is that it's based on individualism. It's based on isolating consumers, not allowing the conditions for collective action, collective knowledge, collective ways of being of, of taking place because that gets in the way of consumerism and it gets in the way of a consumer kind of uh, political system. And so um, when, when there are spaces and opportunities for people to get together and become acquainted and discuss issues that are of, of importance, and if you're in a local area, those things might be, how can we turn that vacant lot into a garden? Uh, how can we start up our own renewable energy company? Then things might happen. So the more that you have that kind of uh, social fabric where people are connected, the easier it is to plant those seeds, so to speak, and for them to take off. And for you, it's it's really important that, it, that things are really bottom up because there's a tension between, because if you facilitate these these this potent or the, the, the potency or the potential of relationships in a certain area, um, it's really hard to not take the lead or to not be the director of these processes. So over the years, you've developed these uh, methods of building up these relationships from the ground up. And maybe because you, you told us just before we started recording this uh, conversation is that you're working now on this, this convention almost, or this, this meeting, this gathering in the woods close to Totnes, which is one of those sessions right in which you try to to harvest uh on these relationships i think uh one of the key words uh in all of this is participation what are the ways in which we can participate in our society well one way is we can be a consumer or we can be a voter we can be a voter once every four years these are, are very kind of passive roles 
it doesn't ask a whole lot of you. Um, but there are, there are other ways that we can participate. And when we start thinking about those and creating the conditions for those ways of participation, we move toward a new politics and a new kind of economics. And so um, this kind of gets us maybe into, into conversations about commons and commoning, about citizenship and what it means to be a citizen. I mean, you're a citizen wherever you are. You have a, an inherent right to exist. And you have an inherent right to do what you can to have a happy and fulfilled life. And you have an inherent right to work with others for those things. And so we just try to create opportunities for that sort of thing to happen. And one of the things that we've developed here in Totnes is what we call the Local Entrepreneur Forum and the Community of Dragons. And it is like a little convention or... It's all about trying to facilitate that kind of uh, connection and that kind of agency and getting practice at it. You know, um, we don't get a lot of practice with our agency because we have no control over what's happening, right? This was one of the big Brexit slogans, getting back control. When, when we're in a totally messed up world as we're in, we all feel like we're out of control. And so how can we get back some control? Well, we can get back control by taking action, by participating with others. Anyway, that's why it works. We have lots of uh, kind of facilitated networking and open space kinds of uh, methods for allowing people to interact in interesting ways. And then we have four or five entrepreneurs pitch to the investors. Who are the investors? Well, they're the community and we call them the community of dragons because there's a, a, there's a TV show here called The Dragon's Den. Yeah, yeah. I don't really like that show, um, but people know it. And so we're just, we're reappropriating that word, just like we're reappropriating the word entrepreneur. What kind of entrepreneurs do we need now? More Elon Musks, more Zuckerbergs? No, we need more people like Myrtle Cooper. So she's a young woman here who started up a foraging business, great. We're going to have interesting people here uh, pitching on Sunday for their businesses. And so they'll pitch and the community will respond. I'll loan you 500 pounds or I'll loan you a thousand or I'll give you a hundred or I'll help you with your business plan or I'll make you a video or a website or, you know, I know you didn't ask for this, but I'll introduce you to so-and-so in my network and I'll do this and I'll do that. And you know what? I just love what you're doing. So I'm going to bake you a cake or I'll give you a hug. And so this gives us an opportunity to really shift the narrative and shift the story about what it means to, to or participate. Be, yeah, exactly. Is that then the essence of, was that also the essence of the re-economy project that we should open up our idea of what transactions are and that they're not only financial, but that you can add all other kinds of. Well, that is a very astute question because in the beginning, we didn't really start uh, with that kind of uh, awareness. So what I'm saying to you now has the benefit of 10 years of learning and, and perhaps is a little bit more articulate than we were in those days. When we started, we thought, well, what can we do to make a difference in our local economy to reduce our ecological footprint, to create more opportunities, especially for young people, and the kinds of opportunities that are, that are meaningful, beneficial to the community and the, and the ecosystem. And it has evolved as we, we began. In fact, there's a great quote from E.F. Schumacher, which is something like, an ounce of practice is worth about a ton of theory. 
And I think that's really true. So we've learned a lot about what we've been doing. We started by doing and, and have developed a greater theoretical understanding by thinking about what we're doing and theorizing, developing our own models, but also being a student of what works elsewhere. And because of my own experience, I've been a great student of what has worked in Silicon Valley. Why is Silicon Valley the way it is? There are great lessons to be learned there. Well, and one lesson learned is that in that Totnes community, there are people willing to bake a cake and give a hug and invest 500 pounds in, in, uh, in an interesting pitch that somebody does as an entrepreneur. At the beginning of this talk, you, you shared with us, because of, because of your move to the UK, coming from the USA, you have a kind of, let's say, insider-outsider position. You're in between. You're <laughs> How do you make that productive within such um, participatory situations when you facilitate these kind of processes? That's a good question. Um, I guess I probably have two answers. My first answer is that uh, because of my personality and because my personality is in some way a product of my culture, I can sometimes get away with saying and doing things that other people can't. But sometimes I can be the guy who says, no, that's a crappy idea. Now, generally, that would be considered quite rude in this country um, in, in a meeting. And I don't always get away with that kind of behavior. But I'm from California and that kind of irreverent, uh, playful, open to possibility kind of orientation is, is quite normal to me. And in California, you know, you can have those kinds of conversations and, and people don't get upset. You know, the, the other side of it is as an outsider, sometimes I have a, a sort of a patina of credibility, whether I've earned it or not, I don't know. Hey, I've come from California. So people sometimes are a little bit more willing to listen to me. And so I've tried to make this work in various ways. And, and I think for the most part, they've been little, little victories in, in, you know, in those situations where you're having conversations or you're in a group dynamic and things are blocked. How does innovation happen? How do we, how do we learn to do something new? Well, very often it's the outsider who brings in the new idea from somewhere else or comes in from a, a different discipline to offer a different perspective that maybe shifts the thinking in the group. So I've often thought about that as um, just as my own kind of modus operandi. Um, and this feeds into how I try to curate events and, and build networks and, and things like that. And I also try to play that role too of being sort of the, the divergent voice or you know, trying to bring in something unexpected to, um, to shift things. Well, outsiders also bring in, if it goes well, if they land well, it also brings in the idea of curiosity because curiosity, you need to be curious to change or to innovate. Yep. I, think. I suppose outsiders sometimes bring contagions also. So it's not a universal principle. But when we, you talk a lot about uh, fertile grounds and let's make that uh, literal um, because Arturo Escobar, he breaks down live into a string of verbs, basically. He talks about eating, caring, learning, building. And eating is also, and agriculture is also a topic that we like to touch upon when we're on Mull. 
So is there something in that incredible edible project that you could give to us that we could bring to Mo when we go there next week? And I know you're quite hesitant in, in advising others because every locality is different, but is there something to say about that? Well, the, the thing that's really nice about incredible edibles, and um, I should say we have it, we have an, a, an incredible edible program here in Transition Town, Totnes. The people who started Incredible Edible are up in Todmorden, which is up north. And I think the thing that is immediately apparent with this kind of approach is that because you're planting food in public, it has an effect on people. So sometimes people are surprised. Oh, well, why are these things growing here? And what does this mean? I can take some. What if I take too much? What if I, yeah. what if I take a little bit? And so it just gets them to start thinking about food and, and where it comes from and, and so on. So it's been, it's been a successful experience here. Um, there are various parts of Totnes that are planted with food. In Todmorden, I think the real transformative outcome from that uh, program is, is incredible farm. So they've planted out public areas, a very symbolic kind of gesture, but now they've got a little farm and they're training people how to grow food. We have to produce more food in ways that are going to be ecologically wise, whatever that might mean on mole. How's the ownership? That is a good question. I'm not sure. It's in Todmorden. It might be um, organized as a community interest company in which case the assets are, are kind of locked for the benefit of the community. That's a, that's a form of ownership. It's not formal, but it is a kind of control over, over those assets. There are other community ownership models out there that are becoming more and more popular for things like farms and uh, buildings uh, and so on. Um, these generally fall into community land trust or community beneficial society models. So these probably also do exist on, on mall. But the radicality of, of growing crops in the public domain, the crops are for everyone. It's an interesting idea to take crop growing out of the privately owned um, crop grower or garden that's owned by someone. Well, that's an interesting point. You know, who owns the land in this country? I think crown. Yeah, every bit of every bit of property is owned by somebody. And the crown owns a lot and then the duchy and there's still large parts of England, uh, huge percentages that are that the ownership derives from from the invasion of William the Conqueror. So virtually it's all stolen land <laughs> controlled by the aristocracy. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the incredible edible project stirs that that depth of analysis in people generally in this town anyway, the Incredible Edibles is on um, publicly owned land or land that's controlled by the local council. And so have had to get permissions to do it. It's not guerrilla gardening. Yeah, not food <laughs> energy, no. <laughs> but it, it brings, um, what I love about Incredible Edibles is the name. I just see cartoon vegetables. I can't help. <laughs> I don't know, cartoon vegetables walking around. <laughs> that eat each other up. I don't, I don't know. It sparks my imagination and it, it 
it makes me think that there was a term that I wanted to bring into this talk, and I'm going to do it now right before the wrap-up, <laughs> which is a term very dear to uh, Arturo Escobar, the term relocalization, which obviously, since there is the same re-prefix as in re-economy, is part of your re-economy project too. Escobar talks about relocalizing knowledge, skills, but of course also food, money flows. You just mentioned how you can make sure things don't get completely out of control, exported out of your out of your community. I'm now thinking that perhaps we also need to relocalize imagination. I think the essence of relocalization is in response to um, the kind of uh, extractive, globalized, or even just nationalized uh, corporate control. Of, you know, of our kind of economic system, which is centralizing and monopolizing. And all of, all of this sucks more and more money uh, from one part of society into a, a fewer and fewer number of pairs of hands, if you will. And so what is the antidote? Well, there, there are many, there, there isn't an antidote. There are many treatments, I suppose. And there isn't one that is going to solve the problem. But but one has to think that at least part of the solution is to sort of reappropriate some, reappropriate some of that economic power. So relocalization, I think the first time I heard that word was maybe 20 years ago, and it was in the context of permaculture and the work of um, David Holmgren. He wrote a great book, Pathways to Sustainability, which um, I highly recommend. And, uh, but anyway, people have been talking about relocalizing for a long time. Why? Because the kind of economic system that we have is becoming more and more concentrated uh, and globalized and, and large swathes of our global economic system and our national economic systems is sort of a rentier kind of economic relationship where, where you know, the money is just flowing in one direction, up, up, up all the time. So we see the consequences at the local level um, because there are fewer local shops, fewer local factories, fewer local uh, producers, more and more imported stuff. So there's a big part of relocalization that says, hey, how can we recapture that economic power and build it locally? Well, if we had local producers, local businesses, local ownership, we could keep the money circulating locally longer. That creates more income and helps to retain wealth. So that's, that's what's motivated a lot of this stuff. And so when you begin thinking about it and going deeper and deeper, you find, of course, well, the culture is a monoculture, a globalized monoculture of consumerism and, and so on. How can we re relocalize our culture? How can we do more things? How can we meet more of our own needs from our local resources? And this you know, provides a nice little link to bioregionalism and ecology. How can we live within the caring capacity of where we are in this place? How can we learn to love this place and reconnect, bring it back to life? And this idea of the imaginary, this is, to me, this is an interesting tension in this movement because we, I think we have, I'm going to oversimplify just for the sake. We have on the one hand, people who do things. And then we have on the other hand, people who tell stories. And, um, this might seem like a pretty simple kind of uh, formula to work out. If we have better stories, we'll do better things. And so there's a lot of attention paid to, well, if we, if we had a better narrative, 
we just told a better story. And I think that is crazy talk. <laughs> it's not crazy talk, but it's only part of the story, if you will. The other part of the story is the stuff that exists in the world, the doing, the, the manifestation, the world that is the very ground of our being. Where do our ideas come from? Where does the grist for the story come from? If we're telling inspiring stories about things that people did elsewhere, it's because they did them. So there's real power in doing things. And the more, for example, uh, just to bring it back to local economics and, and maybe a little bit about how Silicon Valley works. So in Silicon Valley, the dominant story, the dominant imaginary uh, position is one of possibility. Why? Because you can see the possibilities in front of you. They're tangible. If I wanted to start a business in Silicon Valley, it would seem easy because I talk to people all the time who started businesses or who are team members or investors. It's, it's, a, it's an ecosystem where there are multiple pathways for getting something done. Therefore, it's in the imaginary. And I think here locally, when we begin thinking about how do we, how do we manifest the pluriverse, it's only by doing things and creating those examples in the world. And when you create these examples, when the pathways to po new possibilities become apparent, you unlock and you relocalize that imaginary. Suddenly now the imagination reels with possibilities. This is the story of how Transition Town started. People were looking at each other like, oh, you wanna start a community garden too? I thought I was the only one. But now that there are two of us, hey, let me just say one more thing, just so people don't think I'm, well, incomplete in my own story. It's not only about doing things because you have to have the stories too. There's a total, there's a total dance. It's an interactive, inter, interdependent kind of relationship. We need, we need both always and all the time at the beginning and at the end. Thank you for this key to ending this conversation. Thank you so much. <laughs> Great. Well, it's been my pleasure and um, thank you very much. And I hope the project goes well and I look forward to hearing more about it. We'll keep you posted. In Search of the Pluriverse is the first edition of the Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Institute that brings together local makers and makers based in the Netherlands to learn together how formal and informal ways of knowing can reinforce each other in tackling ecological, socio-political and spatial issues. The Traveling Academy is realized in close partnership with embassies in the participating countries. Thank you.